Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. One big question on my mind since the awful events in Paris last week is whether or not the horrible and dramatic attack might provide the kind of shock to the international system that could unstick international diplomacy on Syria and move the needle in the right direction. Here with me to discuss the diplomatic implications of the Paris attacks is Ambassador Christopher Hill. He is the former U.S. ambassador to Iraq, among other places, and was a lead U.S. negotiator during the Balkan conflict. He's now the dean of the Corbell School at the University of Denver and was on episode 29 of this very podcast to discuss his life, career, and his memoir, Outpost, which is a fantastic read for the International Affairs set. I caught up with Ambassador Hill just as he was leaving for Dayton, Ohio, to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the Dayton Peace Accords, which ended the Balkan Civil Wars. We have a very interesting conversation about the kinds of lessons that can be drawn from the Dayton experience and applied to international diplomacy on Syria. This is a great conversation, very uh, helpful to me personally to try to figure out what diplomatic consequences the Paris attack might have on Syria diplomacy writ large. I think you will find it useful as well. As always, I post one of these timelier conversations every Thursday, and every Monday I post longer conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who tell me about their life, their career, and the big events that shape their worldview. If you are new, welcome. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our robust archive of previous interviews. I think you'll be impressed. We put together a long string of fascinating interviews for the last couple of years. So go check that out. And now here is my conversation with Ambassador Christopher Hill. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I mean, do you think that the Paris attack will have or will be the kind of exogenous shock to the international system that might inspire meaningful progress towards an international diplomatic solution to the Syria conflict? First of all, I think it's um, it will help people understand the situation in Syria a little better. There are essentially two civil wars in there. One is this uh, narrow issue within Syria between various uh, Sunni groups and the Assad regime. And in that particular civil war, I think there's an understanding that we need to come to some kind of diplomatic solution. I'm not happy with the fact that the Russians seem to have taken the lead on that, but uh, be that as it may, I think it's important that the U.S. be there and be looking for uh, a way forward So I feel that there is at last some kind of Syrian peace process. Um, The second issue, and a much broader issue, is the issue of ISIS. 
there are those who say that uh, we need now to get serious and send in uh, the troops. I would argue that, yes, some seriousness is necessary, but it ought to first come from the Sunni Arab community that has essentially allowed this to fester, allowed themselves to be intimidated by it, and worst of all, uh, uh, in a number of cases, allowed people to say, well, I don't like the ISIS's uh, um, means, but certainly I'm pleased that someone is finally doing something about these Shia. In short, the ISIS crisis is a crisis within the Sunni community that is between more moderate Sunnis and a much more uh, um, virulent um, uh, you know, uh, extremist version of Islam, largely coming out of the, uh, out of the Arabian Peninsula, but one that I think is a threat to the entire Sunni uh, region. Mm -hmm. After all, ISIS is not just interested in uh, in uh, taking territory in Iraq and Syria, taking deserts in Iraq and Syria. ISIS is interested in being the custodian of the of the holy places, uh, Mecca and Medina, mm -hmm. in uh, Saudi Arabia, and ultimately being the leader in uh, in mm -hmm. in the Arab world and in Islam. Well, well, so I think the Sunni community needs to get real about this. And finally, and I think this is the issue that affects us all, it is clear that they have ambitions that go well beyond the Arab world to uh, go after what they consider us to be, that is, the infidel. And there, I think, uh, we all need to take a measure of... Uh, of um, uh, measure from this uh, Paris uh, uh, attack and come together and and uh, deal with this uh, mm -hmm. more forcefully. Uh, so, so this question of this being sort of a a, a sort of Sunni struggle and then principally a a Sunni issue to wrestle with um, is is fascinating to me. I mean, you know, Saudi Arabia has has so far uh, been among the more hardline uh, members of the international coalition uh, against ISIS in sort of insisting that Assad's ouster is a prerequisite for, for well, much yes, of anything. I would, I would not call that a hardline position against ISIS. I would call that a hardline mm -hmm. position against what they regard as Shia encroachment. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, so I guess, yeah. So that, so my question is then, um, does this sort of new manifestation of, of ISIS provide the space for, Saudi Arabia to have some sort of like rapprochement with with Iran or come to some sort of understanding with Iran? Well, I think in the long run it does. But I think it is clear that ISIS is threatening uh, not only uh, Shia, which is what the Assad issue really is about, but they're also threatening uh, the rest of the Sunni world. And I don't think the Sunni world can get away with saying that somehow we need more Sunni outreach from the Shia community to deal with uh, with ISIS, and moreover, we need uh, uh, Assad, who is not a Sunni but a, is an Alawite, which is allied to Shiism, uh, that we need Assad to leave the scene. So, um, in order to deal with ISIS, so I think um, uh, the the Saudis and others in the Sunni Arab states need to understand that the problem is ISIS, not Shiism. And yet what we've seen from the Saudis is they seem more interested in putting down the Shia allies in Yemen, that is the Houthi, than they've been in dealing with uh, with ISIS. And in fact, if you look at their military operations, uh, they have shifted really from uh, from the battle with ISIS to the battle with the Houthi. 
Uh, I understand that to some extent, but also I think the Saudis need to understand that this this attack against Paris is an attack against uh, all of us. And uh, they, too, need to be in a major way uh, dealing with ISIS. Um, so we're speaking on a Tuesday uh, over the weekend, just after the, the Paris attack, uh, John Kerry and Sergei Lavrov and a number of other uh, diplomats from pretty much all the relevant uh, countries uh, you know, in, in the region and around the world, including all the members of the Security Council, met in Vienna and you know, formed what seems to be the first step towards a international diplomatic solution to this crisis, a a political process. Uh, How likely do you judge that process to succeed? Well, first of all, as I said earlier, I think this um, effort to put together a political and a diplomatic process is a separate issue from the ISIS issue. It's a separate civil war. I think, however, it's a very important step. Um, First of all, I think if Syria's governance issues can be calmed down and put in a known trajectory, I think that will um, help arrest the process by which Syria is fast becoming a failed state. And uh, ISIS thrives in failed states. So it's connected in that that sense. So uh, I think it's a positive sign. I think one of the problems, and I would argue one of the sideshows, has been this question of what to do with Assad. Now, the Americans uh, felt uh, back in 2011 that Assad will be gone in a matter of weeks. So saying we were not going to uh, um, deal with him amounted to a strategy of maybe turning those weeks into just a few days. Well, the fact is he's still there. So I think uh, what is beneficial about this Vienna process is the Russians can perhaps put the pressure needed on Assad to move on this issue, and we can put the pressure needed on on other uh, on other players. As we speak today, um, it is the 20th anniversary to the month mm-hmm. of the Dayton Peace Accords, and even though in the Dayton Peace Accords we never envisioned war criminals such as uh, such as uh, Rotko Mladic, uh, uh or or uh, um, or uh, Karadzic, Radovan Karadzic, yeah, uh, Radovan Karadzic, uh, ever playing a political role in the future of uh, of Bosnia. We did not try to uh, enforce that uh, until we had already basically agreed on a map, basically agreed on a on an internal map that is, basically agreed on a constitution, on an election schedule, on institutions. Uh, the the purpose of the institutions mm-hmm. being to def- to uh, protect the minorities, since minorities aren't always protected at the ballot box, since often they're out they're outvoted. And at that point, when we were 90% of the way there on the political arrangements, what would Bosnia look like in the future? We then said, oh, by the way, we don't want war criminals uh, being a part of this future. And it was acceptable because people saw all the progress had been made. I think in Syria, we did it uh, upside down. That is, we started with the issue of people we didn't want to see in the future, and have only today, have only now gotten around to the crucial question of what the um, uh, what the political arrangement should be in Syria. Should it be a single state? Should it be in its existing borders? A lot of questions. So I think uh, what is 
happened in Vienna is an effort to put aside the question of Assad and work on mm-hmm. some other issues. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Dayton. Uh, you were, I should say, for those who aren't aware, you know, one of the key negotiators of, of Dayton, along with Richard Holbrook at the time. Um, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to draw some similarities. Um, what you're describing of the Vienna process, and I, I really appreciate how you sort of talked about two different civil wars, and it seems that the Vienna process for Syria is trying to almost disaggregate these two civil wars, solve one so as to, you know, create an international coalition to to fight ISIS. Um, one, I, I guess, do you see that strategy as, as plausible? I mean, is it possible to disaggregate these issues in such a way? And two, what lessons do you draw from the the Dayton process that might help inform how we can go forward uh, from, you know, untangling what seems to be a very messy set of conflicts layered on top of conflicts? Well, as you know, there are many people who are very critical of the Dayton process today because they believe that the process has sort of frozen in these sort of ethnic enclaves. I think that's a fairly harsh criticism, and I think it's a criticism of sort of uh, of uh, using uh, standards that were not available to be used at the time. What we did was to stop the war, mm-hmm. and in the process of stopping the war, we were able to uh, get institutions to take hold and to make sure that uh, uh, minorities were, were protected. I think uh, the lessons of Dayton are that uh, we could not have left it up to the parties directly concerned to come up with these ideas for political arrangements. And so I hope that lesson of uh, putting forward proposals from the international community, even somewhat detailed proposals on what institutions would look like, uh, I hope that uh, the less, that lesson of Dayton will be applied in Vienna. Because when I hear the idea that we're going to um, allow the uh, the uh, uh, combatants, the, the um, warring factions, to uh, dictate what will be uh, decided. I think is a uh, is an approach that will lead us nowhere. Um, and um, I think it's fine to talk about elections, but I think we need to understand that part of the problem of Syria historically is not the lack of elections, but it's the lack of uh, of political uh, structures and institutions that can protect the many minorities that live in Syria. Yeah, like Assad has a very good election record, right? He, he wins. Yes. He wins yes. most of the elections very handily. Yes, it, it uh, often democracy. You know, you you do need elections in democracy, but elections are just a very mm-hmm. small part of the overall process. I mean, think what you think of think of elections if you're an Alawite, the best you're going to do is 15%, uh, and that means you're going to lose badly. So you don't want to be a part of a country that could become Sunni-stan, Arab-Sunni-stan. You want to be part of a country that ensures that your uh, that your autonomy and that your customs, etc., uh, exist. And for that, you need to see agreement on institutions more than just agreement on elections. Um, so, you know, one of the the you know, I think you you mentioned earlier that the the key um, you know critique, but also the the key you know value of of Dayton was that it was very good uh, process to stop a war, not necessarily to to build a state. Yeah. Um, you know, and and one of those one 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 of the key inter- the the key aspects of Dayton was kind of carving up uh, Bosnia into you know ethnic enclaves like Republic Srpska. Um, I, I guess, do you see that carving up of Syria as the most plausible 
outcome at this point. It doesn't seem to be part of the Vienna process just yet. Uh, well, they're nowhere near uh, the stage of explaining to us what Syria should look like as a country, what kind of system it will have. But I would take issue with uh, your formulation that it was uh, the participants in Dayton who carved up the country into ethnic enclaves. It was the war that carved up the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was the war that created a situation where Muslims were in one place, Croats another, and um, Serbs in still another. So uh, acting on the principle that we didn't want to engage in forced migration, putting people back, throwing people out, this kind of thing, we accepted the essential divisions with the understanding that we were not going to allow the capital, Sarajevo, to be divided. Uh, after all, it had been only a few years before that we had a divided city in Europe called Berlin, and we didn't want to replace Berlin with Sarajevo. So we created a lot of institutions, including uh, principles of the right of return for um, uh, refugees to go back uh, to where they came from, where they would probably be minorities. And obviously, this has proved uh, very difficult. But I think at the end of the day, people in the Balkans, I know them well, often start by blaming uh, the Ottoman Empire for their travails. Then they blame the uh, the uh, uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire for their travails. And now they blame the architects at, Den at, uh, at uh, Dayton for their problems. So I think it's maybe time that they started to look to themselves and figure out how they can kind of make the necessary uh, uh, adjustments and compromises with others in the area to try to come up with a stronger central government, as, for example, the U.S. did when we ditched the Articles of Confederation and opted for a constitution. So I get a little grumpy when people <laughs> in Bosnia blame everyone else for their problems and don't ever look in the mirror. So what? So I, I'm catching you right before you're headed out to Dayton. What's, what's the Dayton uh, commemoration going to be like? Well, what, what's on the docket? Uh, I think uh, Bill Clinton will be there, and I think there will be a lot of speeches about uh, what was done in Dayton. Uh, I will be talking there uh, uh, Thursday morning, and I'm going to make the point that it was, a, it was a moment in time when the Europeans, the Americans, and the Russians got together. It wasn't easy. We had seen the, uh, the problem or we, uh, in different ways, just as people are seeing the Syrian problem in different ways. But we understood that if we got together and put together a plan, not known as the Dayton Peace Accords, that was more an implementation document. What we did was we put together something called a contact group plan, and that was essentially done a year before. And we got, uh, it was a sort of Vienna type process that we're seeing today in Syria. And then we uh, were able to sell the contact group plan and show how it would be implemented such that the parties uh, finally decided to endure the unendurable and accept it. So um, I think it was a real uh, credit to uh, diplomacy. And uh, most of all, it saved lives and brought Europe and the United States who were sort of going off in different courses. We brought people back together. All right. Well, Ambassador Hill, thank you so much. Uh, safe travels, and thanks for speaking with me. Okay. Pleasure. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Ambassador Christopher Hill. And yeah, just my, my thoughts are with uh, the people in Paris and, and the victims of this attack. I mean, there was something 
almost so deeply personal uh, about the attack striking a concert venue in which an, an indie rock band was playing. I mean, I could see myself going to a show like that. And it's a band that I, I certainly admire too. Um, so it's just, yeah, I could definitely see myself in the shoes of the victims of those people at the concert in ways that um, were, were just kind of very personal and, and very upsetting. So it was tough. Anyway, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye.